morning for giving us an opportunity to worship together. Thank you that the scripture that has been spoken in these songs is true. Lord, that there's no height, no nor no depth, that your love won't follow us. God, we're grateful in preparation for Easter that we are still reminded that Easter is every day. God, we love you so much and we're grateful for your presence here. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. You guys, it's watching you up here from, from the stage is weird because you guys like, one, you separate. Look at, there's nobody in the, like Karen, good on you, you know? But then you also like, you're like, poof. Like there's a sprinkling and then poof. See, oh, thank you, Amanda. See, anyway, I just think it's weird. It's just funny. It's, it's interesting to watch you guys. I'm watching you. <laughs> that makes me a creep. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Welcome to week three of our Big Butts of the Bible sermon series. Um, last week, I regaled you with the story of Zacchaeus, but you know, I won't say more importantly, um, some really nice corgi butts. <laughs> so, but this week... We are going a little, someplace a little different. We're actually skipping ahead of Easter this week um, to post-resurrection, a story that happens, but that Jesus still has an incredible hand in, right? Because if there's anything that we know about Jesus, his death and his resurrection were only the beginning of his work here. Um, today, we're going to be talking about a man named Saul from Saul of Tarsus. I almost said Saul from Tarsus. That works too. Whatever. Um, <laughs> but as we prepare for Easter, I just want you guys to keep in mind that that's a great time to invite people to church. That's a great time because we get to talk about the hope that we have as Christians. Um, and today, we're going to be talking about the same thing in a different story. See, we're going to be in the book of Acts, and this starts right after Jesus is resurrected. So the beginning of Acts, we see uh, the falling of the Holy Spirit um, on the disciples first, and then it begins to spread to the church in Jerusalem. And so by Acts chapter 5, the church in Jerusalem is a boom in place. People are loving Jesus in Jerusalem. They're getting saved. Hundreds of people at a time are coming to know him. It's really incredible. Um, but also in Acts 5, we begin to see things heating up a little bit. In Acts 5, we begin to see the first beginnings of persecution. Um, and by Acts chapter 7, things have really begun to boil because we see the very first Christian martyr, the very first public killing of a Christian for their beliefs. And that's actually where our story begins. So we're going to start at the end of Acts chapter 7, with verse 57. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, and Saul approved of their killing him. This is the end of chapter 7, where we see Stephen martyred. And our story really begins in, in chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, but this is the first glimpse that we get of Saul of Tarsus as he is overlooking the first public murder of somebody whose life Jesus has changed. Right? It's a somber picture. And who would ever pick Saul of Tarsus to be a missionary? God. That's the, that's the short answer. Um, 
And I, and I think there's an interesting thing going on here because in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, God says to the people in Jerusalem, he says to his disciples, that his plan is not just to lead the church in Jerusalem, is not for the gospel message to stay in Jerusalem, but to spread to Judea, to spread to Samaria, to spread to the ends of the earth. That has always been the plan, that the gospel message would be for everyone. But if I'm a Christian in Jerusalem at that time, I'm thinking, man, this is what it's about. This is where everything is. Who would we, who would we even get to go to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth? Who will go? And in Saul's story, we see the preparation of something incredible. We see God moving in this man's life to position him to be exactly that person. Saul of Tarsus, killer of Christians. To spread the gospel message to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Dramatically, Zacchaeus was changed. Before, before God, or before Zacchaeus ever knew that Jesus was pursuing him, Jesus was pursuing him. And that's the same story that we find with Saul. It seems to be a pattern of our Lord. That before we ever realize it, God has given us a purpose. That before we ever know, God is working on us. Acts chapter, oh, sorry. Skipped ahead. <laughs> God's preparing his messenger to the ends of the earth in the man of Saul long before he ever knows that Jesus is pursuing him. Long before he ever knows Jesus. The IVP New Testament commentary says this about Saul. The most important event in human history, apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, is the conversion to Christianity of Saul of Tarsus. If Saul had remained a Jewish rabbi, we would be missing 13 of 27 books of the New Testament and Christianity's early major expansion to the Gentiles. 13 of 27 books of the New Testament. And this man began by watching Stephen be stoned to death. From where we stand, how can something like that possibly have happened? Our story begins in Acts 9. Acts 9 verse 1 says this. Meanwhile, Saul, Saul, oh my goodness. <laughs> Guys, take a breath. Stall? Stalled me, that's for sure. <laughs> Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. This passage tells us something about the character of Saul. He is zealous. He is passionate about what he believes is right. This man is a, is a Jewish elite. He is a teacher of the law, and he believes in that law. 100%. And what we see here, this, the way that this has been translated is, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. But a far more literal translation is, Hate for Christians is the air that he breathed. His, his existence, it felt, was to take out the name of Jesus, to wipe it from the face of the earth, because in his mind, Jesus was a heretic. He didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Right? And mind you, this is post-resurrection. 
as the church is booming, as lives are being changed, and Saul says, there's no way. There's no way. All of you are crazy. You're all taking a sip from the same crazy cup. This cannot be true. Right, and he's so passionate about this message that in a patriarchal culture that acknowledges primarily the men, he says, I want this decree not to just be for men. I want to round up women too. Anybody whose life has been dramatically changed by Jesus, I want them to be in prison because what they are speaking is lies. That is very profound. And I know that it doesn't seem that way to us, but this is a man who would have nothing to do with women other than this. We see this man who is passionately living out his beliefs, but there is a distinct difference here. There are still wishy-washy people in this culture. In the culture of booming church, there is still wishy-washy Christians, and that's not who Paul is after. He couldn't care less. If you can jump on the fence or jump off, then he'll leave you alone. Right, because that means that life change hasn't happened. He's going after the heads of, our, of this movement. He's going after the people whose lives change other people's lives just by the way that they live, just by the way that they interact. He's going after people who Jesus has radically changed. Men, women, he doesn't care. He believes in the message that he's been given, that Jesus was a liar. Acts 9, 3 through 6 say this, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Jesus says something really interesting in this passage. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which is interesting because for all intents and purposes at this stage, Jesus is, is dead and has risen again. Right? Why are you persecuting me? But this does tell us something about the nature of Jesus, about the nature of his church. That Jesus doesn't see a difference between his church, the body, and himself. That his bride is so close to his heart that to tear apart his bride, to tear down his bride, is to attack him, is to persecute him all over again. This is a man who died on the cross for the church, for his people, for us. And he says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I think about this kind of like how I imagine a marriage must be. Right? You think about your spouse, and if somebody were to say something negative about them, it would hurt you. Right? You would say, man, why did you say that? How could you talk about my husband or my wife that way? That hurts my heart. Right? Because you, you begin to merge together, for lack of a better term. I, it's a little weird in those terms, I won't lie to you. But you begin to become of the same essence, of the same stuff. Right? So somebody says something about your spouse and it dings something in you. Because at the very least, what's going on is you've picked that person 
and they're trash talking them. It doesn't feel good, right? Or I think about those of you who maybe have kids. If somebody were to pull on your kid's pigtail, you'd say, ooh, I'm going to talk to your mom. I'm going to pull on her pigtail, you know? Um, We become of the same essence, of the same stuff as the people that we dearly love. And that's what Jesus says about his church. Saul, why are you persecuting me? My church is me. See, and this is very countercultural for us, this idea that Jesus and his church are so united, are so close, that to treat his church casually is to treat Jesus casually. Because we live in a culture where a lot of people really love Jesus, don't they? They say it everywhere on Facebook, on their bumper stickers, in line at the grocery store, oh, I love Jesus too. But we also live in a culture where community is not at its peak, where togetherness is an idea that seems foreign, where the church is an old ideal. To treat the church casually is to treat Jesus casually. And Jesus says, that doesn't make any sense. Why do you persecute me? And and there's another whole element in this passage. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. See, he knows that this is a divine encounter because it's not every day that a light falls from heaven, that a light falls from the sky and you're blind, right? That's not, it doesn't happen to me on a weekly basis even, not even yearly. I'd pay to have that, you know, subscription. Anyway, uh, (laughs) so Saul thought that he was doing God a favor. Saul knew that this was a divine encounter, but he had no idea who he was talking to. And in his mind, if this is God, well, this can't be God. Why do you persecute me? He knows that this is divine, and when he asks it, Jesus tells him, Jesus, I'm Jesus, that's who I am. Saul, why do you persecute me? And imagine his surprise to hear the answer to that question. Jesus. Imagine how backward he felt in that moment. I would imagine how downright wrong he began to feel as he was struck from a light from heaven, and it was Christ. I would imagine that the faces of those who he had watched killed flooded through his mind. The faces of the people that he was rounding up to take to prison were flashing. Author and theologian N.T. Wright, he, he imagines it this way. Imagine his excitement as in the depth of devout meditation he saw with the eyes of his heart, so real that it seemed as though he was seeing it with his ordinary physical eyes, and then so real that he realized he was seeing it with his physical eyes, the form, the fire, the blazing light, and the face. And the face was the face of Jesus of Nazareth. Suddenly Saul's world turned upside down and inside out. Terror, ruin, shame, awe, horror, glory, and terror again swept over him. And years later he would write of seeing the glory of God in the voice of the Messiah. The law and the prophets had been torn apart and put back together in a totally new way. The God who had always promised to rescue in person had done so in the person of Jesus. And everything that Saul of Tarsus said and did from that moment on, and particularly everything that he wrote, flowed from that sudden, shocking, 
seeing of Jesus. We already know that Saul is a passionate man. And we already know, because we've seen the end of this story, that this is true. That from this moment of seeing Jesus, something changed. The reality is this, that a genuine encounter with Jesus changes everything. That's true for Saul, that's true for us. The first thing it changes is an encounter with Jesus changes what we see. Because an encounter with Jesus changes how we see. It makes Jesus the lens, it makes Jesus the perspective through which we look at life. Verse 7, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. Not everyone who is confronted with Jesus will change, and we see that in these men. We see that in the people who are experiencing the same exact thing as Saul, but they don't see God in it. Who see the light and hear a sound but don't have an exchange with Jesus. But that's the nature of conversion, right? That something can happen in your life that changes everything for you. And you begin to look at life through a different lens. You begin to see God everywhere. You begin to see God in your pain. You begin to see God in your joy. You begin to see God when other people are suffering and struggling, but the people around you can't see him. Right? Because a genuine encounter with Jesus changes how you see. And I kind of think about it like this. Like, we can imagine going to incredible places. Like, maybe for some of you, it's the beach. I have a picture of a, a beautiful beach here, right? And as we think about it, we can imagine what it must feel like to be there. We can feel the wind that is warm. It's a nice breeze. We can feel with our minds, our toes dipping into the sand. We can feel the heat of the day. We can feel the sun on our shoulders. Or maybe for some of us, it's the mountain. This is Pikes Peak, beautiful. Right? Maybe for some of us, it's getting to the top and seeing the view from, from the top. Maybe in the distance, we see a very, very tiny little city. Maybe we see giant marmots. If you've ever been to the top of Pikes Peak, what are they feeding those animals? Are you for real? They're crazy big. Maybe you see sheep or goats or deer up in the mountain. You can see the tree line. You can feel the cold of the wind and the frost on the top of the peak. Right? If we can imagine these things, why do we go anywhere? Right, because you sitting here, just as much as I standing here, I can feel the heat of the sun on my shoulders. I can remember what that's like. We go because a genuine encounter is so much better than a picture. We go because that genuine encounter compares nothing to the feeling of being a mile above the town below you. We go because that genuine experience changes us. We go because we can't get a suntan from a picture. And I kind of think there's another point here that's true. 
that we go because we want the genuine experience, but we also can't have that stay with us forever unless we continue to go. Right, just as, just as soon as you come back from vacation, your sunburn or your suntan starts to fade, right? Unless you make a conscious effort to sit in the sun. And that's true of our relationship with Jesus, right? That that initial first encounter changes everything. It absolutely does. It changes how we see the world, but it is the daily continual interactions with Jesus that continue to shape how we see, that continue to make our lens different than the world. There are really two options in life. You can be transformed by Christ, or you can be transformed by the world. And I'll tell you, the world will try to transform you without you even knowing. But it's those daily interactions that keep your skin tan. And when Saul opened his eyes, he was blind. In this moment, that's, that's crazy. He sees the glory of God, and first he's not struck dead, which... We've seen in scripture, it's not a fun time, right? But he is blind. He can't see. And I think that this alludes to a spiritual blindness that Paul was experiencing, Saul at the time was experiencing. It's similar to the blindness that Lindsay talked about a few weeks ago uh, with the man who was born blind. And once he could see, he could sense that other people were blind, more blind than he had ever been. There's a spiritual blindness here because Saul thinks that he's doing the right thing, but it isn't until his sight is taken away that he can see clearly, that he knows, I am persecuting God. I am persecuting the Lord, capital L. What area of your life are you blind Is there an area that you don't like to look through the lens of Jesus in? Maybe that area is sin. Maybe that area is your relationships with other people. It could be any number of things. Is there an area in your life where you are spiritually blind? Where should the Lord take away your sight, you would see clearly that is wrong. Number two, Encountering Jesus changes what we hear and do. Verse 10, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he said. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. See, Ananias is a long-time Christian. He is one of the people that Saul would have arrested. This is a man who knows what Saul is about, who knows what he's coming there to do, and he says, Really, God? Really? See, because Ananias has no idea the transformation that is taking place in Saul. God didn't disclose that part of it. He just said, Go. Ananias has no way of knowing that Saul is blind, that he can't see, that Saul is beginning to have a heart change. And here's the deal. Conversion always happens because of a choice, and Saul hasn't made that choice yet. If there's one thing that Ananias knows, it says Saul hasn't made that choice. Right? Saul's blindness was not a choice. 
Saul's blindness is something that happened to him. And so God is involving another person saying, listen, you have to go to Saul because he's in need. You have to go to Saul. I know who he is. You know who he is, but he's in need. In order for a conversion to take place, that conversation has to happen. That choice has to be made, and that's why Ananias is chosen. And it goes on. Acts 9, 13 through 14. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. See, Ananias is having his own butt moment in this story. This moment is our big butt moment for today. Of Ananias saying, but Lord, I know who Saul is. I know that he has overseen the killing of Christians. I know that he's the one rounding us up and putting us in prison where we can't spread your message. I know who Saul is, and there's no hope for a guy like Saul. See, and the reality is that God can change people, and he does change people, and sometimes that starts with our saying yes. How frustrating. Ananias has this but moment. But God, how could you change a man like Saul? Like Saul. Anger, have you ever said somebody's no for them? Because that's what Ananias is getting ready to do. Is he is saying Saul's no for him. He says, but God, Saul will say no. I can't go there. Saul will say no. And the Lord still says, go. He doesn't even discuss it with Ananias. He doesn't even address this but moment in his life. He says, go. Right, because Ananias has no knowledge of what's going on with Saul, but he does know what the voice of Jesus sounds like. Ananias' life has been transformed by Jesus, and so he's hearing differently. He has his hesitation. He says, but God, and still in his mind, he hears the voice of Jesus leading him to do something, and so he goes. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. God has called and set Saul apart to preach to his world, to be the next great apostle, to be the next person to spread the gospel message into the rest of the world. Jerusalem is covered. In Jerusalem, you've got the disciples, right? In Jerusalem, you have Peter, king of the church. <laughs> but the rest of the world, we get Paul. But this begins a movement that we are still a part of today. Without Paul, you and I may not be sitting here. Without Paul and his heart, his zealous, passionate heart for what is right, and here he knows now what is right in this story, we would not be here. It's his love for the Gentiles, it's his love for Jesus that spurs him on to lead that message. Verse 17, Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. 
Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. He made the choice. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Ananias went. He had his but God moment, but he went. Right? Because an experience, a true encounter with Jesus changes what you hear and what you do. Ananias had no idea what was going on with Saul, but he knew who Jesus was, and so he trusted. He heard the promise of Jesus speak to him about a man named Saul who seemed hopeless, who seemed like he would never say yes. Have you ever said somebody's no for them? I have some super spiritual advice for you. I love this sermon series. Can I just pause and say I love it because... I get to stand up here and say but all the time. Okay, I have some super spiritual advice for you. Get your butt out of the way. Yeah, you guys love it. Look at it. <laughs> I thought about spelling it with two T's and I, I didn't, so you're welcome. But imagine if Ananias had not obeyed. Imagine the loss to the kingdom that not having Saul would cause. Ananias heard the voice of Jesus and he set his butt aside and he went. Encounters with Jesus don't start with self. Encounters with Jesus start with Jesus. So sometimes we have to put ourself to the side in order to follow Jesus. And number three, encounters with Jesus change what we become. And there is no place clearer in Scripture that I see that than in the story of Saul. Saul goes from persecutor of Jesus to lover of Jesus. And it was faith in Jesus that changed who Saul became because that's what a true encounter with him does. Verse 20 says this, At once Saul began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? And yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. See, this week, is, as Elizabeth mentioned this morning, this week is Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday that Jesus rode to town on a donkey and people laid things at his feet. And they shouted his praise, they shouted his glory, and they said, how great are you. And in five days, their opinions of him changed. In five days. And next week, we celebrate his resurrection. But five days from now, who will you be? Will you still be laying things at the feet of Jesus? Because he has changed who you have become. Or will you be one of the ones shouting, crucify him? Five days difference. See, Saul believed when he lost his sight, he believed that Jesus was who he said he was, right? Because he, he told him, I'm Jesus. But until he accepted it, nothing changed. Until he accepted it, his eyesight wasn't restored. Until he accepted it, his ministry didn't start. It didn't begin. 
right? Even the devil believes that Jesus is who he says he is, but he's not transformed. Are you letting Jesus transform you? So the, the reality is that if you have had a true, genuine encounter with Jesus, you can't be the same. And I'm sure that many of you remember this in your life. That first shocking seeing of the face of Christ, and it changes you. Right? But as we go about our daily lives, as we continue to walk, the world creeps in. And that becomes a distant memory unless we find ourselves at his feet frequently. Are you letting Jesus transform you? It's those daily interactions that change how you see, that change what you hear and what you do, and that change who you become. And here at, here at Anchor, we believe in something called offensive authenticity, and I love this. Offensive authenticity is the idea that we can be as broken and as dirty and as sinful as a man like Saul, and that God still can see something in us. That when we are at our most broken moments, when we have no hope left, that Jesus offers to be our hope. And it's in those moments where we recognize our blindness, where we come to terms with the fact that we can't see without him. It's in those moments where we find ourselves knelt at the foot of the cross that we most clearly see the hope of Christ. And we're not ashamed of that. Offensive authenticity because it offends a lot of people. It offends people to see others broken. It maybe offends something in your spirit to be broken in front of other people. But it's real. It's true. And that's where the hope of Christ lives, is at the foot of the cross. We also believe in navigating life together. And this is important in thinking about next week. What happens next week? Easter, a celebration of the life of Christ, a celebration of his resurrection, a celebration that Jesus is who he says that he is, that he did what he said that he did, and that we can have hope because of who Christ is. What an incredible time to invite someone to church. Navigating life together. Who is the last person that you invited here? Have you said their no for them? See, navigating life together is about so much more than just being present for the good times. It's also about walking through the blindness to find that at the other side of things, there's Jesus. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Um, and I need you to think and picture the face of the last person that you invited into your home. The face of the last person that you invited to church. The face of the last person that you shared the gospel message with. And that face may seem very distant. It may seem like a faded memory. Or maybe it's as clear as today. But the fact is that Jesus hasn't lost sight of that person. And he wants the opportunity 
to extend his hand in grace. What an incredible time to invite somebody into the fold of Jesus' arms. Encounters with Jesus change everything. Would we invite people into that?